In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Good morning. Uh, last Wednesday, which of course was Ash Wednesday, we heard Nathan preach a gorgeous sermon about Joni Mitchell's song, Woodstock, which is not just a song about the rock and roll festival, of course, it's, it's actually about what Woodstock represented to so many of us, especially those of us who were hippies back in the 60s. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. We are stardust, we are golden, Joni Mitchell sang, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. The song is about this longing to return to this primordial time of innocence. And, you know, I've always connected to it very deeply. Some days it's almost like a homesickness in me, this longing, a nearly lost memory of a time when we lived in harmony with the earth and our souls were free. And this morning we heard once again this ancient story from Genesis about how we lost our citizenship in the country of that garden. Obviously, I'm a child of the 60s. You know, when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, I was eight years old and my life was radically and permanently altered. I became their most enthusiastic evangelist. To me, the Beatles and later the hippies represented the church of peace and love, of rock and roll. And when Woodstock happened, I was 12 years old, and it seemed like the hippie dream was actually becoming real, you know? I thought they were showing us the way back to the garden, to peace and justice and beauty and innocence. I mean, all you had to do was look at those pictures in Life magazine. You could see it right there. Thousands of young people living together in peace, naked and unashamed, right? <laughs> Camped out in the land, their souls free. Someday, I imagined we would all find our way back there. It was only a matter of time before a baby boomer got elected president and then finally world peace would be at hand. And then just four months later, Altamont happened, the Hell's Angels happened, and the dream of Woodstock was shattered. <clears throat> Around the same time, my family had this adorable standard poodle named Sophie. She was all black. She had these gleaming dark eyes and a constantly wagging tail. And like all poodles, she was playful and affectionate and cuddly. She was the perfect family pet. And one day, Sophie and I were goofing around in the backyard and she spied a rabbit and she took off like a streak of black lightning flying across the yard and across the road in pursuit of the rabbit. The rabbit disappeared down this drainage ditch next to the road. Sophie dove in behind it and about three seconds later, she emerged, head held high, tail wagging and the bloody dead rabbit between her teeth. She was so happy. She was so proud of herself, carrying her trophy home. And I never looked at my cuddly, adorable poodle quite the same way after that. 
My poodle, Sophie, illustrates this problem that we're looking at this morning in the story of our fall from the Garden of Eden. Because here's the thing, Sophie never ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why she's so happy. (laughs) Sophie did not have an ounce of remorse or guilt about anything, much less killing a perfectly delicious rabbit, you know? To her, the chase and the kill was a joyful experience, a rare romp in the wild. She wasn't hungry, she didn't kill for food. She killed it unselfconsciously and instinctively, and she killed for the fun of it. Unlike humans who are prone to guilt and remorse and PTSD when we do such things, Sophie never lost her innocence. Throughout the entire natural world, that's how it works. Predators kill without an ounce of remorse because they don't know any better. They haven't eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then something, though, happened along the way, along the evolutionary chain, right? We developed brains that are capable of self-consciousness. And in that instant, suddenly, shame and guilt take up permanent residence. We feel naked and we cover ourselves. We can't stop thinking there's something wrong with us that we've committed some kind of great crime. We can't stop thinking about the people and the animals that we've hurt. For some reason, the rules are different for us. For one thing, we have rules. Black widow spiders, you know, they can decapitate their lovers. Nobody blames them for it. But Jeffrey Dahmer does the same thing and suddenly he's a monster. What is that about? I mean, what is the difference, really? We live outside the garden, that's the difference, and spiders live inside it. We have lost our innocence, but they still live in blissful ignorance, not knowing good from evil. So then, the great moral project comes along. We had to invent a solution to this problem. What do we do with our guilt? How do we release ourselves from it? How do we set our souls free? Well, we began, of course, by inventing the law. Lots and lots of laws, distinctions between good and bad, and we tried to get everybody to obey the law as best we could. We kept thinking that if, you know, if we just preached a better sermon, if we just told a better story, if we just came up with a better song, everyone would finally start following the rules and that would get us back to the garden. But to our dismay, the law did not restore us to the garden of innocence. As much as we tried to be good, we still messed up. We could not keep the Hell's Angels out of the rock concert. People continued to get hurt and we remained guilty animals. In Paul's terms, with the law, there is always also condemnation. There is no paradise for a guilty animal. So what do we do? And then along comes Jesus, who shows us the way to this third stage of our evolution. If the first stage was the Garden of Eden, and the second stage was guilt and remorse, and a sense of alienation from the rest of creation, then the third stage is the way of Jesus. 
which is also the way of the bodhisattva, the way of the sadhu, the way of the mystic. Consider this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he was offered all the elements of evolutionary advantage. You know, abundant food, physical invulnerability, limitless power. If he had been an ordinary alpha male, just another guilty animal seeking advantage, he would have seized upon these advantages. He would have become the ultimate benevolent dictator. He would have still been trapped in the fallen world of power and guilt, but at least he would have been at the top of that guilty heap, free to impose his rules on everyone else. But instead, Jesus chose a different path. He invented a way out of this fallen world, not a return to the garden of innocent killing, but to a new place, a new creation called the kingdom of God. In that desert, you know, he was tempted by the devil, and, and Jesus did this completely unexpected thing, a thing no guilty animal would ever choose to do. He chose solidarity with the weakest and the most vulnerable, not the strongest and the most ruthless. He chose to love us to the death rather than dominate us. He chose to serve us, knowing full well that his love would bring nothing to him but torture and death. You know, these are not the choices of a mere mortal. These are not the choices that any self-respecting guilty animal would make. These are the choices of one whose soul has been set free by love. One for whom love is stronger than death. One whose very life is powered by eternal life. These are the choices of a God. And when we dare to follow that same path of love, we become children of God and we inhabit, it, inhabit the kingdom of God. You know, I'm not sure that even Jesus could have predicted the tsunami of love that would be released into the universe by his act of love. You know, I think of all the famous saints, all the unknown hermits and the everyday widows and orphans who have been showing up every day to love the world come what may, you know? Come dictators and despots. Come droughts and catastrophes. These are the ones who love through it all. When you catch a cold, they're the ones who bring you hot chicken noodle soup. They're the ones who go to church and they sing their hymns with gusto. They put on pink hats and go on marches. They volunteer at food pantries. They dance on labyrinths. They lead book groups. They chair committee meetings. They are the heroes of the faith and the pillars of the church. And every day, they, that is you, I'm talking about you now, show us how to create resilient communities of love. Joanna Macy talks about the next epoch of human evolution, which is not a naive return to the garden, but rather a radical expansion of love, a love that includes this earth and everything on it. She calls this the greening of the self, 
the greening of the self, a turning point in our own self-understanding, a turning point in our own evolution as our love expands to embrace forests and oceans. In this greening of the self, we are finally joining the cause of the earth because we are finally recognizing that we are the earth. We are made of earth. We are that part of the earth that can raise a voice in its defense and sound an alarm. We are that part of the earth that can listen to what she's trying to get us to hear, which is that she's in trouble and she needs our help. Her troubles now are our troubles because her survival is our survival. Love is the only thing that's going to turn this around. Love for the mother who sustains us and gives us life. I pray that we will be worthy of her mercy and may her mercy always be our salvation. Amen.